Thanksgiving is, I think, most of us a warm holiday, one that all of us <clears throat> can enjoy. In some ways, it's hard to mess up. Time of family togetherness, days off of work, time of eating good food, whether it's turkey and stuffing, hot pot, bulgogi, or tacos. Family gets together and eats more than we should and enjoys lots of time together and a break from our work and labors. I hope you enjoyed yours. Thanksgiving time often causes us to think back to where did this holiday come from? To remember early Thanksgivings in the life of our nation. Those early pilgrims celebrated God's provision through a harvest in which they finally had the crops that they needed to survive in this new world. And while these people were thankful to God, the reason they were in the situation of scraping together meals in a new world is because these people were nonviolent revolutionaries who had left their former regime to find a new world. These were people of faith, desiring freedom of worship and looking for political change that would free them up to worship God as they, in their conscience, believed that they should. It's interesting to think of a time of Thanksgiving where we are all thinking of the good gifts and blessings that God has given us as being a time to think of unsettled people politically looking for regime change. But that's what it was. I wonder if you ever have such a desire. I think all of us have at different times. The desire for political change. The desire for a regime change. I think all of us in a fallen world know that things in this world are not as they should be. All of us desire something better, something different. And often this causes us to look to our political situation and believe that what needs to change is something from the top. Uh, My wife and I lived in Washington, D.C. for eight or nine years. We saw such small regime changes take place every two, four, or eight years as political movements shifted, as whole country perspectives changed, and as the nation turned their hopes for true change, for actual change in their everyday lives were focused on a political leader or a political party. Remember that night, November 2008, A whole city awake, honking horns with excitement. Washington, D.C., as uh, President Barack Obama had been elected. Remember the excitement throughout the, the city and the nation and the hope that was sparked that this president is going to make real changes. Remember the whole city shutting down, having a day off of work in January of 2009 as the president was inaugurated, as the shift of power took place from a Republican president to a Democrat. We watched from around the world a few years ago as the same thing took place, but this time from a Democrat, Democratic president to a Republican one 
as the nation's perspective had shifted again. Such regime change, a hope of a political change to change my life experience, was desired by the people of Jesus' day. And they were pinning their hopes on a political leader who would come and change things politically in Israel. The nation was, as we hear in uh, political shows, ripe for regime change. The people were ready for a change of political scenery. And onto the scene comes Jesus. And he begins proclaiming a message of a kingdom coming. Political language. He declares himself to be that king. And he declares something new. And though he was the long-awaited king that Israel had been hoping for, the regime that he brings, the way that he goes about bringing in this kingdom is not at all what they expected. And this unexpected king comes with an unexpected strategy. He gets an unexpected response. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at this unexpected revolution. Jesus bringing his kingdom. We've begun a a series in the Gospel of Luke, piecemeal. The Gospel of Luke is a record by the doctor, Luke, one of the Apostle Paul's associates, who has in this Gospel brought together for us a faithful narrative of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection, and of the mission that he sent uh, his disciples on. We are finding ourselves in Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who was also the Savior of the world. He has come not just for the Jews who had long awaited their Messiah, but He has actually come to be the Savior of the world. And so Luke portrays in his Gospel his birth and his genealogy showing that He has the right to be this Messiah King. Shows... Luke shows for us his anointing by the Holy Spirit in the beginning of his ministry. He shows us how Jesus has proclaimed his purpose to bring good news to the poor. And then Luke has now been showing how Jesus demonstrated his power and his authority to be this Messiah. He's done this through remarkable miracles, through healing the sick, through delivering people from demon possession. And as Jesus comes, declaring Himself to be this Messiah, the response from the people is very mixed. The the Jews were expecting a Messiah. The region was ripe for regime change. But the regime that Jesus came to offer did not meet their expectations. So if you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. King Jesus brings his kingdom by the hearing of a preached message. King Jesus brings his kingdom by the hearing of a preached message. And we'll have three points this morning from the text, from Luke 8, 1 to 21. The first, unexpected strategy. The second, unexpected response. And the third, unexpected representatives. I pray this morning that uh, this passage as we hear it together, 
that God would use it to change our hearts. As we begin, let me start reading in Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. And we'll read down through um, down through uh, verse 8. Luke 8, 1 to 8. This is God's Word. Soon afterward, He, that is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with Him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and uh, and Susanna and many others. Sorry, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said, in a parable... A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I had a very short-lived political career. My political career came up short. I was running for student government secretary in my college or university. Uh, My career lasted less than a month. I lost my only campaign by one vote. I wonder if you've ever delved into politics at any level, whether student government or been involved in some grassroots campaign. I wonder if you've thought about political strategies, how it is to affect such change in the world. We had our strategies. We had our um, signs. We had our political pithy sayings of what it is that we were offering. But my political career came up short as I was not able to convince enough people to vote for me. As we think about political strategy, as we think about accomplishing good at a political level in this world, often we think in very pragmatic ways. How can we get things done? How can we accomplish things? We can hire marketing people to help us get our message out. We can hire lobbyists to try to speak to government officials. But what's remarkable about Jesus strategy as he brings his kingdom to this world, it doesn't seem to fit with those pragmatic mindsets for how to affect real change. Jesus' strategy is remarkable. It is the opposite of what we would expect. He doesn't have a sword made for himself. He doesn't get a horse. He doesn't pull together an army. He doesn't think about his revolution through very pragmatic means, the way that we would expect. He brings His kingdom through declaring a message, through speaking God's Word to the world. Point number one, this unexpected strategy. Jesus comes declaring His kingdom. 
You see that in verse 1, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's what he does as he brings his kingdom. He preaches good news. He declares this message. That's what he's going to do throughout the rest of the book of Luke until he is eventually arrested, tried falsely, and then killed on a Roman cross. Jesus, his ministry, Jesus' revolution of a kingdom coming, it comes in very unexpected ways through a simple message being preached and declared. These people were, as we said, ripe for regime change. They were interested in any prophet or political leader. They were interested in hearing what any political party might offer to them. But they did not expect Jesus. And they did not expect Him to come simply bringing a message. But this is how God intends to accomplish His purposes. By speaking His Word to the world. Jesus' unexpected strategy comes through Him preaching good news. This is how God is going to accomplish the change that He intends. The change in human hearts. You see, the issue here that Jesus is speaking into is there is a political problem. The political problem, though, is not the problem of the the Roman government ruling over Israel, which they did not like. The political problem was that we as human beings, we were actually in rebellion against God. And rather than embracing our Creator God as our King, we were actually the rebels. The political change that needed to happen is we needed to actually change our allegiance from ourselves and from anything else that we would cling to in this world and actually turn our hearts back to God. You know, this is why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world for rebellious sinners, sinners like you and me. This is what the Bible calls sin. All of us, from our original mother and father in the garden, Adam and Eve, all of us have been in rebellion against God from that day. All of us are rebels against the only good and right King, our Creator God. And all of us deserve God's just wrath against our sin. What Jesus has come to do is to proclaim a remarkable message, a message of peace, a message of peace between God and men, a message of peace, of reconciliation between our good and loving Creator God, who is our right judge, who invites sinners, rebels like you and me to be reconciled to Him, to lay down our arms that we have been holding in opposition to Him, to come near to Him and to find in Him a pardon for all of our sin and rebellion. This is why Jesus has come. This is the kingdom that He brings. A kingdom of reconciled sinners coming back to their Creator God and righteous judge. A message, a message of good news, a message of peace for all that will come back to God and be restored. This is the gospel message. Jesus is God Himself in human flesh. Jesus has come to earth and has united Himself with our humanity by becoming fully man, God in human flesh. And He's come completely unexpectedly 
Not because we deserve it or because that we've done anything good that would draw Him to us. No, we've done the opposite. We have at every point stiff-armed Him and pushed Him away, rebelled against Him. And yet Jesus has come to bring peace, to bring hope. And He's done this ultimately through His death on the cross in the place of sinners. He's done this through His resurrection from the dead, showing His power over sin and death. And He's done this now as He preaches this message of a kingdom coming. As He calls us to faith and offers forgiveness to any that would come to Him. We saw last week that Jesus was willing to to make a part of His disciples, His followers, a woman who'd been characterized by sin. And He forgave her for her sin because of her faith. This is what the Gospel calls us to. To turn from our sin. To turn from our rebellion and to turn back to God and to trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And Jesus' strategy for bringing His kingdom, while it's unexpected, is the only one that will actually accomplish God's purposes. It is through a preached message that such change takes place. We heard from Isaiah 55 earlier as Roger read to us. How does real heart change, life change happen? Does it happen through our outside circumstances changing? The change of a a political regime? No. The real change that all of us need, that all of us are longing for, can only happen through God's Word entering our ears and our lives and changing us. And God promises that as His Word is held out, as it's read, as it's preached, as it's proclaimed, that it will make that incredible change in the hearts of those who will respond to Him with repentance and faith. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to do all of God's will. All of His Father's will. And that means proclaiming a message. This is what we mean to do as well as a church. We mean to follow Jesus' example. We mean to follow in the mission that He calls us to by imitating Him, by proclaiming a message. Christians have often gotten excited about trying to do good in this world and have often gotten distracted from the most important thing that all of us are called to do, which is to do what Jesus did, to proclaim good news, to bring a message of pardon for rebels and pardon for sinners. This good news of peace to those that will come to Christ in repentance and faith. But we must not be distracted. This is the reason why we have the sermon, the the preaching of God's Word so central in our services here as a church. Because we realize that it is through this preached message, this preached Word, that true change comes. This is how salvation happens. How people go from death to life, from not knowing God, to being united with Christ through faith. It happens through God's Word being preached. James chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us that God gave birth to us, His people, through the Word. It is the Word of God spoken that has the power to change dead people and to bring them to life. It is the Word spoken that saves sinners. But for those of us who already know Christ, it is the preached Word that not only changes us initially from being non-Christians to Christians, from being uh, dead to being alive in Christ, but it's also His Word that continues this work of changing us, of 
sanctifying us, of making us more holy as we are changed by the Holy Spirit. Looking more like Christ with each passing day. Let me encourage you, Christian, to make the Word central in your lives. To make the Word central in your lives. To be Word-centered people. Word-centered Christians. Christians that prioritize the message the, the Word of God being read, heard, preached, proclaimed in your everyday life. You can do this by once a week gathering with your church family. You can do this by putting yourself under the preaching of God's Word, coming here every week knowing that you need to hear from God if you are to grow in Christ. I encourage you to prioritize the, the gathering of the church on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings as we gather together as people and sit under God and His Word and hear from Him. We all need His Word if we are to continue to grow and to change. We encourage you to do this not only by coming to church once or twice a week, but also by allowing God's Word to be central in your life patterns day in and day out. Do you Personally, open up God's Word on a daily basis and read from God's Word. We need this if we are to grow. It is God's Word, read, heard, by which we grow. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 talks about us needing, like a baby with milk, the Word of God, that we are to be craving this pure spiritual milk, and he says that we grow by it. As God's Word enters into our ears and our eyes and our lives on a daily basis, as we open up God's Word and read it and meditate on it, God will continue to change us. Let me encourage you to not only do it corporately in terms of our gatherings and individually in terms of your daily devotion time, but also in another kind of corporate way as we gather together as God's people in smaller groups, whether it's our small group Bible studies in a more formal way, or in informal ways as we gather together as brothers, sisters around God's Word and hear it together and talk about it together, thinking through how we might apply it to different areas of our lives, sharing sin struggles and allowing the light of God's Word to shine into our lives. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to follow Jesus' example and prioritize God's Word being heard and proclaimed. Jesus' strategy for bringing His kingdom was very unexpected. But just as His strategy of a preached message was unexpected, so the response was unexpected too. Point number two, an unexpected response. You would think if King Jesus arrived in our scene, arrived today in the 21st century, I think all of us tend to think that if He were to arrive today in my neighborhood or in my city and were to start preaching I'd be one of his disciples. I'd I'd follow after him. I would listen to him. But the scary reality is, as Jesus did come to the people in his day, is most people did not respond the way we think we would. This is point number two, unexpected response. And look at how Jesus then speaks in these parables to his hearers. We heard, verse 4 to 8, the parable of the sower. He's now going to explain this parable... And he's going to give them another one. Let's read verses 9 to 18. 
And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in times of testing, they fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus comes preaching this message of the kingdom. But then as larger and larger crowds come, he changes up the way that he speaks to his hearers. Rather than speaking openly and clearly, he begins speaking in parables. Parables are these metaphorical or parabolic stories that have representations that teach some truth about Christ and His kingdom for us through an illustration. Jesus used all kinds of parables. Here we have two of them. That of the sower, as it's called, and that of the lamp under a jar. Now what's striking about this is we tend to think that Jesus spoke in parables to be clear. All of us love good story and love a good illustration. I'm sure that as you listen to a sermon, the things that you take away and remember the most are the stories, the illustrations that are shared. That's why we as preachers use stories and illustrations to get your attention and keep your attention. Because as uh, my father likes to say, we're all babies with big bodies. We're all like kids when it comes to hearing a message. All of us love a good story, and we can get easily bored as God's Word is preached. So isn't that why Jesus used parables? To keep people's attention, to help make the truth memorable. Well, there's a sense in which that may be true. I think all of us can remember Jesus' parables. I think all of us will remember the parable of the sower as we take it with us, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. These are great illustrations. But the The fascinating thing about our passage is that Jesus says that he spoke in parables not to reveal the truth, but actually to hide the truth. Do you see what he says there in verse 9? His disciples came to him. They didn't understand the parable. It wasn't immediately obvious to them. And so Jesus explains it to them. But then he says a surprising thing in verse 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others... They are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. 
You see, Jesus was making a differentiation among his hearers between his disciples and the crowds who came for their own uh, motivation, who came with their own expectations for Jesus, and who came just seeing if there was something in Jesus' message that was attractive to them, but they were already hard-hearted. They were already locked into their own perspectives. They were not open to hearing Jesus' message, and so Jesus didn't preach the message openly. Jesus actually used these parables to make a differentiation among his hearers, those that were already hardened to the truth and would just be confused by these parables and go away uninterested. And those disciples that would cling to his words and draw near and ask him questions and desire to know the the truth and be willing to be changed by it. You notice that the, the word being preached, which is what this parable of the sower is about. This message of the kingdom being preached receives an unexpected response. It isn't that everyone responds the same way with excitement, willing to get on board, willing to do whatever it is that Jesus is calling them to. No, people come with their own perspectives. Whether those perspectives are personal or political, they come with these perspectives hardwired. And the people are finicky. They're fickle like we are when we go to vote every two or four or eight years. We go having changed our minds, being tossed to and fro by the circumstances that we're facing. And these fickle people were not truly interested in hearing the truth. They were only interested in coming if what was being told or taught fit with their preconceived notions. This should be frightening for us. Frightening that we too could be such hard-hearted people. That we too could be like these people in the crowd who listen and hear from God's Word and are interested for a season or for a while. But ultimately, our hard hearts prove that God's Word will not take its effect. The effect that that will take place among the good soil. Look at the way Jesus explains then this parable. He explains it for his disciples. And I love this because it's like a key uh, with a map that helps us to, to read the parables as a whole. I love that Jesus describes how this parable works for us. Look there at verse 11. Now this parable that is the parable of the sower is this. Verse 11, the seed is the Word of God. So we have this parable of this farmer or this sower, the Old English, who would sow seeds. That is, they would take a bag of seeds and they would go through a plowed field and they would scatter and spread the seed in a a time before machinery. There were no tractors or great pieces of machinery to spread the seed. They would do it by hand. And he says, seed is the word of God. Now there's nothing wrong with the seed. The problem is with the response of the soils that the seed lands on. The same seed of the word of God is spread broadly. But different people respond to the same true and wonderful message, the same good news in different ways. And we see here four different kinds of responses. And these are the four soils. Look at verse 12. The ones along the path, 
are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So here we have the first response, the response of the soil that is the path. I don't know if you've spent any time around farms or farmland. If you've spent any time around agricultural situations. I, I grew up working on a dairy farm, and we had uh, crops. We would go out and work in the fields. It was a truck farm. They would be growing produce. And on these fields, there would always be some kind of path around it or in the middle of it or through it that would allow those who walked and the machinery to, uh, to, to move around between the fields. This path, this hardened place is what this is, uh, the soil that Jesus is talking about. This is the, the, the ground that is pounded down through many days or years of walking. Many days or years, perhaps even, of carts or of animals walking along that path. It's now so packed down and hard that no seed will ever penetrate that soil. These are the hard-hearted. The second... Then, in verse 13, is the ones that are on the rock, he says, are those when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in times of testing, they fall away. This is talking about soil that has hard rock underneath it, and it looks good on the outside, but there's no soil there for those roots to really get down, and so they never get down far enough to actually penetrate the soil and begin to grow. These are the ones who, in a time of testing, fall away. And then the third is that that falls among the thorns. There's other weeds there that choke out the seed that don't allow it to grow. And he says these are those that are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit is not mature. You see in these three responses something of the three great enemies that God's people face. The world, the flesh, and the devil, though not in that order. All of us, as we are seeking to know God, seeking to hear the truth, seeking to follow Jesus, are going to be attacked by these enemies. You see, the first one is the enemy of the devil, Satan. An angel of light and all of his minions is at work and there is a battle going on for souls in this world. And Satan seeks to undermine the truth that we hear from God's Word. He seeks to undermine the work of the Word and of the Holy Spirit. And he will, through temptation and through distraction, keep the, the seed of God's Word from taking root in the hearts of those that hear it. We see also the flesh in the second one here. It is in times of trial and testing and difficulty that our flesh gives in as God's Word comes in, but our desires, other things that we want in times of testing, win out. And then we see the world in the third one here. The distraction of cares and riches and pleasures of life. All of the things that this world has to offer. It's the enemy of God's Word accomplishing its work, and taking root. You see, all of these three soils, which is pictures of people like you and me who hear the truth of God's Word and yet respond differently, all of these soils, to some extent, hear the truth and understand it. 
And it seems that all of them, to some extent, even respond rightly or respond well at first. But yet it's only the seed that's sown on the good soil that actually perseveres. Look at verse 15. As for that, the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the true Christian. The other three are those that hear the truth, perhaps even respond well for a season, but prove over time that they were never truly saved. This passage does not talk about you being able to lose your salvation. The Bible doesn't ever tell us that you can be saved from sin and then lose your salvation at some point in the future. Those that God saves will be permanently saved forever. But there are going to be those that appear to be saved for a season, but prove over time that the work that seemed to be real was not, was never real. They'll be like those that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, I I never knew you. Not I knew you once, but I never knew you. A passage unexpected responses to the same truth should cause us to check our own hearts in terms of how we are currently responding to God's Word. I'm not here to frighten or or unsettle Christians to begin doubting your salvation. But all of us must take stock of our lives and question whether or not we may be deceived. Whether or not we may be one of these seeds that is on one of these other soils. A helpful test for us is to ask the question, how am I responding to God's Word today? And perhaps, like these soils, what are the things that are distracting me from God, from His Word, from gathering with His people? from delighting in His Word, from finding Christ precious, from finding His Word sweet? Are we currently in the midst of one of these three scenes, being drawn away, being tempted or enticed by the world, the flesh, and the devil? Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're wondering that, to talk to someone about it. Do not stay in a position of doubt or confusion, but talk to perhaps the person who brought you or Christian that knows you well to help you evaluate your own life, to be sure today that you are not self-deceived. But there's something here for all of us, even for Christians that are truly saved, to learn that we are in a war and we are in a battle and that war will continue even if we are true Christians. And the temptations of the enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil will continue on. And we'll be at war for our souls. And we must fight. We must work to persevere. To, as it says in verse 15, to hold fast to the Word. Not be distracted from it. We encourage you, Christian, to persevere in delighting in Christ and finding God's Word sweet. It may be that you're in a season where Christ is not precious to you and God's Word is not sweet, persevere. Let me tell you from experience that the more you persevere in reading God's Word and drawing near to God, the sweeter His Word becomes and the more precious Christ becomes to you. Let me encourage you to persevere in it. If you're in a season where Christ doesn't feel precious to you and God's Word doesn't seem sweet like honey, as the psalmist says, 
to speak to another Christian about it and spend time with other Christians. Perhaps their delight in Christ and finding joy in the Word will begin to rub off on you. Let me encourage you to persevere as the seed in this good soil does with patience day in and day out so that this true, real change that happens in the good soil will take part in your life. He speaks to them of a second parable too, that of a lamp under a jar beginning in verse 16. It's an interesting parable. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who may enter may see the light. Slightly confusing parable. It looks like what Jesus is saying here is if the light has entered into our lives, if the truth has entered into us, that we must not hide that fact. Or be like a chameleon trying to blend in with this world while somewhere in our hearts having allegiance to Christ. No, we must put that light on a stand. We must then take the truth that we've heard and be those that then associate ourselves with Christ and take this message and begin to declare it ourselves to others. There is always going to be a temptation in this world to hide our association with Christ, if it's unpopular, to be like a chameleon blending into our surroundings, whether it's our family, whether it's the people at work, whether it's our friend groups, to pretend for seasons that we're not truly Christian. This is what Christ is calling his true followers to do, to not hide the light that they've received, but actually to put it on a stand, to be those that associate with him and then take the message they heard and proclaim it to others. Jesus then gives this command, verse 18, take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. What a wonderful verse to memorize. What a wonderful line to remember. It isn't just that we hear, but how we hear that is important here. What Jesus is saying is the way that we listen to the truth, the hearts that we have as we approach God and the truth of the gospel is going to have an effect on what happens in our future. There's a wonderful little book uh, by um, uh, Matthew. Now I didn't write it down. I forget his last name. Matthew Smethurst, called Before You Open Your Bible. I just read it. It's short. It's really helpful. And it's about this idea here, how it is that we hear God's Word. He's telling us ten heart postures that we should have as we open God's Word, our our approach to God's Word. This is so important for us. It may be that you are coming in week in and week out to this very church, you're coming in week out, week in and week out, and you're listening, maybe half-heartedly. But the way that you are approaching God and the way that you are approaching His Word is going to have dire consequences for you. Take care then how you hear. We must be those who not only hear the truth, who not only know the truth, who not only hear the gospel and know the gospel, but we must be those who respond as Christ calls us to associating ourselves with Christ and then taking his message on. And then we may be like the people in this passage, point number three, his unexpected representatives. 
his unexpected representatives. I love that in this passage, Jesus has now taken with him very unexpected representatives. As he is proclaiming this message, as he is preaching the truth, as he is forgiving sinners of their sin. An interesting, unexpected group of followers uh, begin surrounding him. I love the list here in 8, 1 through 3. He says that the 12 disciples were with him, but look at who else was with him. These unexpected representatives. Some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. You see that Jesus now has not only disciples, but representatives who begin taking the truth that they hear and putting their light on a stand. They are not ashamed to be associated with Christ. They're not concerned with what people will think about them, but they are happy to be called His disciples. He has a list here of three women out of whom Jesus had cast out evil spirits. These three women, it looks like, had all had evil spirits cast out of them. Jesus had healed them in a remarkable and powerful way. And they are now not ashamed to be known as His disciples. What I love about this is these are unexpected representatives. They're all women. Just as we saw in the previous passage at the end of Luke 7, this uh, sinful woman who is then associated with Jesus, causing that awkward scene with her tears and her weeping and her ointment. Now we have three more of these women named. And just as these are unexpected representatives of Jesus, Jesus is not ashamed to be known as their king and for them to be his subjects and followers. Now, for for those of us steeped in the 21st century, this was surprising 2,000 years ago in Palestine. Women were not seen as equals with men in society. Women were not even able to take part as witnesses in a crime. They could not be called as witnesses in a crime uh, that was committed. They weren't seen as being reliable witnesses. They were treated more as, if they were wives, property than as actual equal human beings. And yet here, Jesus is willing for these women to be his representatives in this world. Luke, too, is not ashamed to list them as Jesus' followers. And what I love is that Jesus, as He is raised from the dead, is not ashamed for women like this to be His representatives, to be witnesses of His resurrection, and to be the first to see Him raised from the dead, and to go and to give reliable witness to the other men disciples that Jesus is risen. Jesus here makes a stark statement that these women are equal citizens in His kingdom. That these women are able to be faithful representatives of Him. Faithful witnesses of the truth that they've heard. Those that can put the light they've received on a stand and proclaim it for all to hear. You see, He has quite a variety of people. Not only women, but it looks like different kinds of women. Some, like the chapter before, who were sinners, it looks like prostitutes. Here we have women that are from all kinds of walks of life, both low and high. And Jesus isn't ashamed for those that are in the lower classes of society, or even those that are 
rich or well-to-do like Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. He's willing for any from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, even from all ethnicities, if they would come and repent of their sins and trust in Christ to be his followers and then to not only follow him, but to be his representatives in this world. Jesus uses some parabolic language at the end of our passage in verse 19 to 21. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus does something remarkable here. The other, uh, the other gospels fill in some of the details. His mother and brothers thought that he was going crazy that his uh, political aspirations had gone to his head. And they'd actually come to, to bring him away. They were embarrassed by him, and they thought that he was causing problems in a scene and embarrassing them in the broader society. So they'd come to, to bring him away. So they can't get into the house, and they send messengers. Can you have him come out? We need to talk to him. And then Jesus also asks the question, who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? A question that almost sounds like he's disowning his own family, though he isn't. But he's teaching a truth that those that come to know Christ are actually brought into a family. We're brought into the family of God. And there is in these family ties something so deep and so tight, they even go beyond the the physical ties of, of physical families in this world. We not only become his disciples and his representatives. But we also become members of his very family, united with Christ, and in being united with Christ, united with God. We are no longer orphans in this world or strangers, but we are literally God's children and family members. And this is how Christ sees us now. And we now have the opportunity to be his representatives in this world. Edmund Clowney refers to the church as being like an embassy of heaven in this world. And this is what the church is to be. God's representatives in this world. The, the, the embassy is a wonderful picture for us. We, my family lived overseas. Embassies and consulates were incredibly important to us when our kids were being born across the world. We had to go to the embassy in order to have their citizenship uh, proven and then their citizenship demonstrated through Uh, birth certificates and passports. These embassies are places in another country that represent a different country in its relationship with this country. And the church is like that for heaven. Churches are embassies of heaven where heaven is being represented in this world. And in the way that we conduct ourselves together and in the way that we represent God, we are now embassies as a church and ambassadors as individuals representing God to a fallen and broken world. And we have an opportunity as now members of God's family and ambassadors for Him to represent Christ to a fallen world. This is what God has called us to. This is what we're called to do with this light that we put on a stand. So what we're called to do as we are associated with Christ and not just become His followers, but children of God. We have the calling and the responsibility to represent Him to a world that is in rebellion against Him. Let me encourage you Christians 
to do this simply by joining a church. Joining a church is a, a wonderful way that you can represent yourself with Christ and with His body. You, you are saying, I have a citizenship in heaven and I am a part of God's family and I am uniting myself with this particular family, this church. I am going with this church to have my passport and to, to prove as a member of this church that I am a part of Christ's kingdom. And not only that, but we can be a part of those that proclaim Christ by doing what these women did, providing for Jesus and His ministers out of our means. Do you see that in verse 3? We can show that we love Christ. We can show that we are connected with Christ by giving faithfully in the offering of our church. And in this way, take part in the word that is preached here and take part in the word that is preached around the world as we partner with faithful ministries as the gospel continues to spread. And as this unexpected revolution takes place with God's word being proclaimed. We can do this as well, not only through connecting ourselves to a church, through giving faithfully to our church, also by being evangelists and proclaiming this message to those around us. In some ways, this may be the more awkward thing that we're called to do. But God calls us to do it, to put our light on a stand, to let the world know that we are Christ's followers and disciples, and to take part in imitating Jesus by bringing a regime change in the hearts of people by declaring an unexpected message. Let me encourage you, Christian, to embrace your role as God's representative and take part in evangelism to those around you, whether family members, whether co-workers, whether neighbors, to be Christ's representatives in this world. We talked at the beginning of a desire for regime change and for revolution, and how King Jesus brings His kingdom by the hearing of a prepared message. Let me encourage you, Christian, to take part in Jesus' kingdom by being united with Him, by embracing His mission, and then by being His representative, by being a voice, imitating Jesus, echoing Jesus' voice of a preached message that brings new life. It's in Christ. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank You that He is indeed King. Thank You that He has come bringing His kingdom. And thank You that His work, His ministry did not fail, but accomplished all that You intended. Thank You that He not only preached a message, but then went to the cross, securing salvation for sinners like us. And God, we give You praise that You've not only saved brought us into your family, made us members of your kingdom, and given us a wonderful calling to represent you to this world. We pray that you give us wisdom as your people to know how it is that we might do this starting today, tomorrow, and the week ahead. That in this way you would be glorified. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.